we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're gonna have some real healing. We've gotta have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. And good morning, this is Dave Debo. Coming up on the program today, we'll be talking with Shandura Brown. She's a nurse practitioner who about a year ago, on the side while she was doing her nursing stuff, decided there needed to be a handbook to teach people a little bit more about how they interface in the workplace, specifically black and brown people, uh, people who might not necessarily navigate it with as much ease as people uh, who are white, So she's written a guidebook. It's been out for about a year. In that year, there have probably been a few changes. We're going to talk about that with her coming up in just about a half hour. But first, Shai Arnold is here. She's the founder of Nura & Associates. They're a DEI consulting firm that works with small businesses and larger corporate partners. Shai, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. That's why I want to pick up on it, because when I think of DEI, I think of large companies, Moog, Rich Products, any of the big banks. You do some work, not all of your work, but some work with smaller companies. And I imagine if it's a smaller workforce, it's probably a lot harder to bring in people of color because you're a two-person shop. You don't have as many openings. Yeah, so thank you for having me. Glad to have um, you here. My company, Norn Associates, the first thing that we focus on is providing a level of um, racial equity and being able to talk about the system of inequities that small businesses focus on. So our two primary services is organizational leadership. And within that, we'll begin to talk about what opportunities are available to be able to close the gap and provide equitable opportunities. So it's more than just hiring. It's the way they manage their business? Yes. It's the way they manage their business. It's the way that they they operate within their business models, the partners that they bring to the table, how they um, continue to advance their relationships with their consumers. And so I primarily, although I serve everyone, I really have a niche specialty with minority-owned businesses, um, so women or people of color. And the reason why I'm specific in that area is because I know the limited access that people of color and minority-owned businesses have had, whether it's due to funding, um, whether it's lack of talent that they can get, whether it's lack of capital, being able to go to those big banks and apply, um, whether they have to leverage their personal funds. There's so many things and so many systems of inequities that have been developed that doesn't allow them to operate at the same level of efficiencies of non, um, non-of-color organizations. Um, and so if you just look at COVID and PPP, a lot of small businesses that were minority-led did not have access to the resources or did not get approved for the funding. So my company is to come in and observe how can we make it more equitable and what opportunities are there. So it's not just incorporate DEI into your small business. 
It's navigate your business as a minority-owned business. Yes, and looking for what opportunities are available um, that are equitable. And when we think about equity, it's just understanding that everyone has a different starting point. And what are your needs? When you look at equality, it's understanding that everybody has the same fairness and likeness. And how I like to describe it as everyone has access to walk in and out of a door. Yeah. But the way you walk in and out of the door or have access to that may be based on equity. So if you are a person who's in a wheelchair, you may not be able to walk through the door the same way a person who does not need a wheelchair. And that's understanding equity versus equality. Okay. And you would argue, obviously, that a person of color has is akin to the wheelchair. I, I would argue that a person of color, people of color, um, need equity. And we, pe- what we need people to understand is that we all have different starting points. And when we look at the systems of inequity that have been placed against us way long back into our history, whether it was the Jim Crow laws, whether it was the redlining, all of the things that have been stacked against us, although we still prevail and we're still able to, you know, do what we need to do, we really need people to understand that equity needs to be in consideration. So when we're creating policies, when we're creating procedures, when we're creating um, systems, we need to think about the systems of oppression historically that has taken place that may marginalize people current day. All right. What are the biggest obstacles to equity? Um, really f- funding <laughs> okay. uh, for a lot of times for small businesses. Um, they don't have, if they don't get the right funding, if they don't get the ability, um, look at change, supplies, demand, something we've all experienced. But when you're a minority owned business, if you don't have the right funding, you don't know how to pivot right away. Mm-hmm. When we think about COVID, people didn't have the extra funds aside in their business model to just pivot to a you know, non-contact based solution. When we think about um, real estate, Three percent of people of color own commercial real estate. Three. Three. Okay. Three. Um, we well, no, we're not even talking about home ownership, but just yeah. think about from a business perspective. So the brick and mortars, or the things that create passive income, right? Or just stability when recessions hit. We don't have that. Um, and so giving us more opportunities to get that type of lending. When we think about our experiences with. Um, Government contracting. You know, I know it's a big push right now for everybody to become minority women business um, certified or just minority business certified. But when we think about historically, all of the big contracts primarily always go to the same people and don't give access for other people. We don't then get access for those big cover, those big contracts. And we then don't know how to do business with the government. Is it fair to say that the MWBE program, Minority Women Business Enterprise mm-hmm. Program, doles out preferences to the people who are registered as MWBEs. I would say it's fair that there's more opportunities than there has ever been. When you look across our region, we see there's a lot of more opportunities to get certified. Um, when I would say in terms of distribution, there's a lot more access than it was before. But? The but in it is. <laughs> I knew it was coming. No, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. The but in it is um, everything is relationships. So it's kind of like a kid that goes to the playground that never knew how to um, climb up the monkey bars by themselves. 
So you give them access to the monkey bars, you yeah. give them all the tools, but sometimes you still need that person on the side that says you can do it left hand, right hand, left hand, right hand, right? And when you kind of get these certifications, you tell them where to go, but you don't have those relationships to right. walk you through. You either don't apply, you get scared, you do apply, and then you realize your counterpart probably got this at such a faster rate, it was an easier process to navigate. So although I love that there's more access, it need, I think it, there needs to be more access um, with the ability of relationships and kind of that pipeline. Does the city or the county or whatever government entity is administering the MWBE program, do they need to change things or is it really more just what you said, the idea of access and awareness? I think the the government entities are doing a better job um, with the changes that have been made. And what I would say that the changes that do need to be made is that it needs to be continued to have equity in mind, continue to invite people of color as stakeholders to the table when they're creating these policies, procedures, um, continue to have shareholder meetings with your community, especially the community who it will be served to, it will be affected to mm -hmm. say, how might we navigate this process together? That feels a lot better. You, I think, are not the first to say that the community, capital C, mm -hmm. is sometimes just left out of the planning. Absolutely. Um, it's always usually we will create the rules, process, procedures, because we know what's best, then we'll go to the community and... And say, here are the rules, here, processes, yeah, and procedures. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think what's... Um, we always need resistors and champions, I always say. So any work that I develop, I always say, let me go to my resistors first because that's going to be the one person who's probably going to give me anxiety, tear it apart, give feedback that my, my champion won't, right? We need that even with people who create um, opportunities for our community. Bring in that community stakeholder who's usually against whatever policy because they give hopefully a perspective that can provide solution change. And then I always tell people, if you come to me with a problem, come with the solution, but also be ready to put in work. I'm intrigued because I think most folks, and, and to some degree I was this way, think of DEI as a big company thing. Mm -hmm. um, what is the impact on hiring when you only have two or three employees, mm -hmm. when you're a small business? Something, I, I know you concentrate on businesses of 10 employees or mm -hmm. larger. But even so, I would think that DEI work for an organization with 15 employees is probably a lot harder than DEI work for a company with 100 employees. Yeah, I, I, I like to say we should think of DEI as an everyday practice, right? So when we're creating any type of business goals, is it inclusive and is it equitable? Throughout the entire throughout the, process, throughout the not entire just the process, hiring thing. not just hiring. It's how we, you know, de develop relationships with our vendors, our accountants, our stakeholders. Our we engage with our um, customers. How we do online business, whatever your business model looks like. If it's I want to make ten k in this next quarter um, with. A new distributor, okay, let's think about is that person a minority-owned business? Let's think about is it equitable because it's a given opportunity, right? Let's think about when I want to hire. For me, I specifically, like I said, focus on um, minority women-owned businesses, although I work with a lot on, and the reason is because I can give them that coaching. So if we talk about hiring, when I focus on organizational leadership, it's mostly the business owner who wants to move on and do something else, but they kind of need their team to continue to run with the mission. So yeah, when you think yeah. about 
hiring, let's talk about venture capital. If I want to go and raise funds as a business owner, raise funds for my venture capital, I need to make sure I have a diverse team behind me. Because they have access to networks, they have access to rooms, they probably have access to information. And if I'm a tech firm and I want to go raise capital um, for for VC funding, nine times out of ten, they have access to information that I don't get as a woman-owned business, right, of color. Mm -hmm. So I need to make sure that when I'm hiring, although I want to create space for hiring people who look like me because we absolutely have the skills and ability, I want to create space for other people, and that's diversity. And then I want to make sure I create a culture of equity and inclusion so that they feel like they belong, they feel like that they're represented. Um, And because here's the thing about it. When we create diverse, equitable cultures and inclusive cultures with any business practice. I don't care if you're a two-man business or a two-million business. You create more business revenue. Not only is it morally correct, you create more business revenue. There is an economic There's an economic impact that is like crucial. Crucial. So when I look at my top brands and brands that I love, even if they're about black founders, guess what they did? They had to diversify their portfolio. Guess who has access to that information? Usually people who don't look like us, but not also let's not mitigate the fact that people who look like us does have access to that information and they're in the room and they will create spaces and tables for us. All right. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about culture. I want to talk a little bit about race relations broadly. Shai Arnold is with us. She's the founder of Nora and Associates, a DEI consulting firm here in Buffalo. As you've heard her say, she works a lot with small businesses. We'll continue the discussion right after this. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. WNED Classical has been conducting interviews of their own on YouTube with the classical music community. Have you ever wondered what goes into the performances you hear on WNED Classical? Head on over to our Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube page to see the collection of interviews that we've orchestrated. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And once again, Shai Arnold is with us from Nora and Associates, a DEI consulting firm. Let's talk culture. It's a topic that has come up in a lot of these discussions on this program. And I think it's hard to define. Mm-hmm. It, it's, <laughs> I don't want to go there. It's kind of like the, there was a Supreme Court justice years mm-hmm. ago that was trying to define pornography. And he said, I'm not sure what it is, but I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Culture is probably the same sort of thing. I, I, I don't know if I can define it, but I can see it and know it when it's already there. Is that is that an apt description, do you think? Yeah. So actually, um, while we were on break, I looked up the definition because for Good me— for you. I love to build culture. Okay. Um, I am someone who considers myself within the organizational leadership to be able to create equitable culture and to be a culture pusher. 
Um, and we need culture pushers because sometimes when we see bias in cultures, when we see cultures that are not, you know, equitable, not inclusive, we kind of just put our head down, sit there and not say anything. I am absolutely interrupter. I will come in and I will say, this is not, what's the culture that we want to live by? And how you always start to look at it is what is our customs? What is our norms? Um, what are the values that we stand for? And when we say, oh, we stand for um, being more inclusive, we accept everybody. But if you come in and a culture is not welcoming, if you come in and a culture does not create space, grace, because we have to always give grace to. Um, Explain that. That's intriguing grace. to me. Yeah, yeah, grace. That's not something I always hear people discuss in this context. Yeah, so grace is one of the biggest values when it comes to working with small businesses and when it comes to working um, in the DEI space that I say we must have as a core value. We must have grace, we must have empathy, and we must have accountability. And what grace means is there's, I want to call you into the work. Right. So I want to ask questions. I want to give you a safe space to ask me questions. And we use safe space willy nilly. Right. But what it really means for a safe space is to have that psychological safety that, Dave, anything that I have asked you is with always the best intent. And so you receive it as, well, she has the best intent possible. Intent versus impact are two totally different things. So how it lands may be different than how you throw it. But the intention was always that you threw it well, right? With sincerity. Right, with with, sincerity. Okay. So when I think about grace, it's extending that. Even if it hit the floor and it hit me on the foot and it did not hit well, right? That's now impact. That because your intention was well, I can give you grace. Mm. I can give you the ability for me to say, you know what, he didn't mean it. Or, you know what, let's have more conversation here. Or is there a learning opportunity, right? Um, Because those opportunities for us to have that open dialogue allows us to move the needle forward, allows race, when we talk about it, racism, systemic racism, oppression, all of those words that people duck in. It makes you feel called into the work and it feels like I may have not started this war, but I can join the battle. How much of culture is the mission statement, the the plaque on the wall that says we believe in this and this mm-hmm, and this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and the other thing I guess that I'm really asking is if it's just a plaque on the wall, does it really matter? How do you infuse that into your workforce? Accountability. Okay. Right. So accountability is what says if you said we stand for three things that's on that plaque on the wall, the culture, when I walk in, will tell me if you really stand for that. And then the accountability and anyone who makes decisions and anyone who operates in that culture daily will tell us if you really stand for that. It's interesting that you're sharing this within the context of DEI. Mm hmm. Because that, to me, is almost management by objective. That's just basic business school stuff, mm-hmm. regardless of race relations being part of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. But when you talk about DEI, people forget that uh, accountability matters, too. Right? Okay. Because some people look at it like, oh, that's the, that's the good work or that's the, that's the correct work. Right? No, DEI should be a practice we live by. I don't even like to say the way we do business has to have DEI in front of it. It should be the way we operate. Right? So you treat everybody when you wake up with kindness and goodness, at least we try to, right? That's that's our mm-hmm. impact that we all try to. We don't say that, oh, I walk around creating, creating a space for kindness and goodness. No, we just do it. It's by practice. It's by design. 
Um, so yeah, accountability is is huge. How do you get more people of color? And this is broad. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't necessarily a, a specific business question, but mm-hmm. so, but but it, it applies. How do you get more people of color to interact with more people who aren't of color, and vice versa? Um, a lot of people, when they have talked about uh, five fourteen, have said that segregation certainly played a role in all of that. How do we as a community not just integrate our businesses, but just integrate? Yeah. Um, well, we have to stop being... There's a couple of things, and people people may not like this on both sides, but what I say is we need to all love, right? And love is hard, especially when it's not been modeled, especially when you don't know. And what happens in love is sometimes there's a lack of trust. You hurt my feelings. Mm. Your group hurt my feelings. You did something specifically to oppress or hurt my group. Um, But if the goal and the mission is how do we move forward, we we first got to start with love. Then beyond that, we got to be honest. We got to be honest about what's really happening, what did happen, why was there an opportunity for it to happen, and then how do we all be accountable to move forward? It's not one group has to be accountable. It's not. It can't be performative. It can't be show up when the TVs and cameras is there. It can't be, I'm so scared, I don't know what I'm going to say if it's going to be the wrong thing, so I'm not going to say anything. Here's the thing, and I'll share my personal experience with 514. To this day, I remember who was there and who wasn't. So even if you didn't know what to say, the fact that you were present matters. And so when we look at our community who feels like in a couple of weeks, this will all be said and done and you'll be gone away. That's what historically has always happened. And so when you talk about how do we integrate, have just genuine conversations, start by saying, hey, how was your day? Start by being open to receive to say, oh, it's going well, right? We got to get back to being human beings who know how to just genuinely love. And um, then it allows us to build trust and have those uncomfortable conversations. But we got to also acknowledge it, too. Like, don't gaslight people and act like these things didn't happen or those things can't be true or because that's not your experience. Two things can be true. That can be someone's shared experience and you can have never experienced it. How have things changed since 514? I, I would think, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that there is more of a willingness to at least talk about these issues. Maybe just a temporary willingness, but more of a willingness, no? What I say what happened for 514 is that it uh, highlighted all of the things that were already there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was already food insecurity. Yeah. There was no reason why we should have only had one grocery store. There was already a level of access um, to financial insecurity or, or lack of education, barriers to workforce. Like, right, there was already child care issues. There was already... That, that 3% figure you said earlier, 3% of people of color, uh, people of color own only, th- only 3% own commercial businesses. That commercial with, real estate in the world. In the entire in world. In the world. <laughs> that existed, obviously, yeah. though, before yeah. 514. So that, that was already there, right? And yeah. it didn't boost yeah. all of a sudden because, right? So... Um, there, all that happened for me, in my opinion, with 514 is that all of these things that were already issues, um, the root causes were kind of highlighted. It's kind of like in a hurricane when a tree falls over, you get to see the roots. Mm. So one or two things happen. Either we started addressing the roots or we begin to tilt the tree up 
so we can now put the roots back down. That's a great analogy. And so for me, in any work that I do, it's how do we address the root issue? Do not throw money at something. Do not throw money at a branch. Do not throw money at the trunk. Let's address the roots. Let's change the policies. Let's change the systems. Let's change the way we operate that causes us to be a root cause. So that way, a decade from now, two decades from now, the next generation coming up does not have the same roots to be dealing with. Do you think that's possible? Are you optimistic? I do think it's possible with intentionality. So when we are intentional, when we take away the performative measurement, when we are accountable, when we're honest, we can change systems together. And and let's just back up. I, I think the phrase on its surface has meaning, but I think in the context of DEI, intentionality is a word that might need a little more definition. How do you define intentionality the way you just used it? So the way I define intentionality is every day I wake up and I think about what are my intentions for today, right? And so if I say I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, I create a practical routine or steps to accomplish X, Y, and Z. So let's think about DEI or let's think about racial equity. If it's we want to improve the workforce by X amount of time in a special zip code, how I'm going to be intentional is I'm going to already do a market analysis to see what workforce opportunities are available what barriers are already there and that may create stakeholder meetings that may mean joining forces with community groups probably already doing the work sometimes big businesses like to come in and do the work versus just locking arms with people already doing the work where there's already trust in the community but that's a separate conversation um, <laughs> Should have had you for the whole hour. Yeah. So so I'm going to be intentional, right? I'm going to create a action steps that's inclusive, that's equitable, that's with the intentions that we're going to get the desired outcome. And then every day I'm going to wake up and do something towards that. And you've added on to that, too. It's not just, oh, I want to be intentional. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts yeah. and prayers. Yeah. It's action. Okay. It's action. It's intend accountability. Intend to have some action. Intend to have gotcha. a, uh, action. Intend to have accountability. Intend to be honest. And intend to measure the impact along the way. Don't get to whatever that date was for that goal and say, we did it. When you started hellfires along the way. Mm-hmm. Like, check in. Right. Check in. Check in with the people, the boots on the ground. Check in with the people who this affects, who it's the desire outcome was supposed to benefit. Check in. Let's assume that we're having the same conversation again a year from now. Mm -hmm. Will things be different? I hope so. I hope it's not the same conversation a year from now. I hope it's a, a follow up, meaning that we can talk about growth. We can talk about progress. We could see because, see, here's the other things with action, real action. You see change. You see change. When someone goes on their weight loss journey, you see change. They don't get to just tell you. Yeah. You see it. And so there's internal and external change that needs to happen. There's psychological change that needs to happen, even within my community. Um, and we have to be accountable for our trauma. We have to be accountable for our healing journey. I can't put that on my counterpart. I have to do the work. Um, but what I can ask my ally or counterpart to do while I'm on that journey is give me grace and space, and then I have to extend grace and space to be collaborative. I understand what you mean when you say it can't be put on other people, but then 
what is the burden in the community? What kind of things do you want to see happen there if they take ownership? Yeah, so everybody needs to take ownership. I need to take ownership as a community member. Other counterparts need to take ownership who are not of the community, right? It's a collective. We have to get together collectively. I do believe the community needs to lead the change. And if that means you give us the resources, access, and power to do so, that happens too. But what I talk about in terms of I have to have ownership over is my healing. I can't put that in the hands of someone else. That's up to you. That's up to me. It's up to me to wake up and say, you know what, today I'm going to choose joy and victory despite the circumstances. And so that part is self-responsible. The other stuff is joint effort and joint forces. we got to have you back. <laughs> I would love to come back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shai Arnold is with Nora and Associates. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great discussion. Joy and victory. Joy and victory. All right. Coming up in our next segment, we'll be talking to Chandra Brown. She's a nurse. But she's an author, too, and we'll talk about the book next. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the Primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. The popular WNED PBS Our Town series is now on YouTube. Explore our region's towns through the eyes of community members who captured them on video beginning in 2003. Debuting this week is Our Town Markham, featuring the founding families, beautiful Main Street, places of worship, and much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Our Town. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. And now, for the rest of the half hour, we're going to be talking with Shonda Brown. She's a nurse, a Buffalo area trauma nurse. Um, no, actually, no? I'm a nurse practitioner. Nurse practitioner. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, but in the midst of that, you decided to write a book, The Black Professional's Guide, How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace. Yes, sir. <laughs> To my mind, those two are not necessarily in the same wheelhouse. Okay. You're a nurse practitioner, but you saw something that said, I need to write this book. Well, you know what? The book kind of started off um, kind of like uh, it, 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 it was an exercise of um, catharticism for me because I had a experience at work. And I do write. I write poetry. I write short stories. But I... It, it was so traumatic for me. I said, you know what, I got to write this down because I can't believe this just happened to me. But then it just started off, you know, like I said, as a way to kind of like exercise some some inner issues that I had about the incident. And then it just kind of took off from there and it expanded. And because of me being a nurse practitioner, 
I wanted to make sure that I wasn't speaking just from my experiences. So I had to interview people. And in me interviewing people, that meant I had to interview black, white, Asian. I had to interview all people and say, you know what? When you see black people or brown people in the workplace, what comes to mind? What do you think of? What have you seen them get jammed up by? And a lot of the scenarios were so similar that I was able to kind of like just go, chapter by chapter by chapter of things that happen to not just black people, white people too in the workplace because sometimes I feel like people kind of enter the workplace kind of green, kind of um, an experience. And a lot of the issues that happen, they're not expressible. You can't actually put them into words. You can't verbalize them. So they enter the workplace, a lot of hubris, a lot of arrogance, a lot of ignorance. And then Boom, they get jammed up. So a lot of unwritten rules. How many people did you interview? <sighs> so I would say 30. Okay. 30, about 30, 35. And what was the number one common theme? Not knowing your worth. <laughs> not knowing your worth. Not feeling valued not feeling wanted, not feeling accepted. So that was all about knowing your worth. So that's why there's a chapter that says know your worth. And it's not just the monetary worth. It's you valuing what you bring to the table, the experiences that you have. And we have this thing that we say within the black community that we pay a black tax. And that black tax is is that we have to work twice as hard just to prove that we're just as good as maybe the average white person. And so I find that to be, at first when I heard it, I was like, eh, I don't know, because I'm a city honors graduate. I've always been smart. I didn't feel like I had to work twice as hard. I felt like it was kind of easy for me to fly under the radar and just get by. Mm-hmm. But then when I entered in the workplace, I realized that because I didn't want to be seen or perceived as lazy, I found myself working harder and harder while most people are just skating by. And you're not alone. I've, I've read that in a lot of other places Uh, I think back to Condoleezza Rice, Mm -hmm. obviously someone operating at the highest levels. She, in her autobiography, said the same thing, that early in her career, she felt she really just had to be perfect Mm -hmm. because she was a person of color. Right. And and oftentimes we carry that... um, we, We carry that on our shoulders. We carry that stigma. I don't know if anybody can imagine how fearful it is when you hear about a crime and you don't have the identity of the person, I can guarantee you there are millions of black and brown families sitting at home saying, please don't let them be black. Please don't let them be Latina. Please don't let them be Hispanic. And then when they're not, it's a sigh of relief. And then when they are, you're like, oh, my God, the whole world is judging all of us because it's this ideal that we're a monolith, that we're the same person across the board. And we're not. We we are individuals with individual ideals. Some of us are conservative. Some of us are liberal. And then some of us just kind of play it easy and ride the middle lane. And I didn't want to play it easy and ride the middle lane. I wanted to take the bull by the horns and actually talk about some of the preconceived ideals that affect black people in the workplace. And is it your contention that these things really affect people of color to a greater degree? I do. Okay. I really do. I always feel like the punishment never fits the crime when it comes to the gaps and the mistakes that are made in the workplace. And I kind of highlight that in my book. I, I, I have a friend. Um, I'm very good friends. Um, 
He's a surgeon, and he he was a single man, and he he liked to play in the workplace. And I used to tell him, "You you can't do that. You you can't do practical that. jokes." You're saying no. Oh, he liked to, okay. You know, little naughty. All you right. Know, he, you know the workplace. I had to ask because I wanted yeah. to be certain here. I know what you're saying. <laughs> the workplace was like his playground. So he's in the workplace, and he's dating, and he's doing this, and he's breaking hearts left and right. And I told him, I said, "You got to be careful. You can't do what they do." And sure enough, what did they do? They took one incident that he, you know, probably manipulated a little bit, and they blew it out of proportion, and he actually didn't practice for two years because he was fighting them legally in order to get off the blacklist that they tend to put physicians on. And I told him, I said, just because this person who looks like this does that, you cannot do the same thing. And they, they, like, literally tried to throw him under the bus. But, you know, a lot of legal savvy got him out of that. One of your other chapter headings is racism. Sure. Now prove it. Mm-hmm. That plays a role here as well. Um, they might have been tossing him out because he was playing around. but The he undercurrents. Ne- he, yeah. And he needed to prove the undercurrent. Mm-hmm. And it is very difficult for us to prove a feeling. An, an ideal that we know it's indescribable, indescribable. The hairs on the back of our neck, it's a feeling in the pit of your stomach. It's the small microaggressions that are subtle. And you're saying to yourself, okay, wait a minute. I know it's racism, but how do I prove it? How do I prove it? And, and sometimes you can't prove how people feel, but you have to prove what they do to you. You have to prove the inconsistencies. You have to find parallel incidents from other people that don't look like you, that don't add up to what you're going through and what's happening to you. Joe, white guy did something, was treated this way. Jane, black woman, did something, she was treated that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you need to document. And you have to document because me being a healthcare professional, if it's not documented, it's not done. It's absolutely not done. And I stand on that. So if you say like the best, um, the, the biggest lesson about real estate is location, location, location. Well, the biggest, biggest lesson you can take about the workplace is documentation, documentation, documentation. And you have to document it. And it's the subtleties. I tend to be a very direct communicator. I don't pull any punches. Um, and I've been told that I've been tone checked. Oh, it's your tone. It's this. And I'm like, well, no, I don't see it because this is the way I, I always am. Mm-hmm. So why is it my tone towards you, but towards other people? They're like, oh, I don't pay attention to her. That's just the way she is. So why is there this sense of fragility? And I always wonder if I were a white male, would you feel it was my tone? You know, because we have to be very careful because fragility plays a lot into it. Resentment, because people will look at me and say, well, you're a nurse practitioner. How hard could you have had it? Well, I did have it hard. That's why I wrote a book about it. I had to navigate some things. I had to learn how to pivot. I had to learn how to readjust and work around some things. You talked about that at the beginning of the program, that there was an incident that sort of inspired you to to write this book. Mm -hmm. I don't want to drag you too far down a path you're not willing to go, but describe that or or some of the other struggles that you've had? Well, that particular incident, there was a disagreement between myself and a younger nurse, a white nurse, and it was over a lab draw. And I was like, well, no, I think it's this. And she's like, no, it's not. It's this. It's this. And then she just started ramping up. Mm. She yelled. She screamed. She was throwing things. We had patients. 
and we had coworkers who were witnessing. And all of a sudden, she started crying. She went home, and she was put on a final warning. But then she kept having other incidents, not only with patients, but with other coworkers of color. And I'm like, how is it that she's like still here? Why is she still here? And I said, is this what privilege looks like? Really? Am I watching it unfold before my eyes? Because I'm pretty sure if I had retaliated, it would have been been against, it it would have been against me. And quite honestly, um, my boss at that time said to me, I'm so glad for the way you handled that, because if you had have handled it any different, I would have had to go in a different direction. Right. Mm. So, and it, it kind of gave me a moment of pause. I imagine so. Shonda Brown is here. She's the author of The Black Professional's Guide, How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace. She's a local nurse practitioner who has written on the side. When we come back, before the program's done, as long as we're talking about writing, I want to ask you a little bit about your poetry, but also more broadly, I think, just uh, race in general and how perhaps the region has changed since 514. This book is about a year old. We can get into whether the things in it are still valid or not, mm-hmm. or if, if you're even it's optimistic. It's about two years old. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I wrote that book, um, well, I released it August of 2020. Everything pre-COVID seems like it is in a different time frame. Mm-hmm. We'll get there when we return. Sandra Brown is here. This is Buffalo What's Next. Stay with us. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, Niagara Falls. Visit a place that is a symbol, a shrine, a theme park, a natural wonder, and the world's capital of romance, Niagara Falls. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Chandra Brown is with us. She's the author of The Black Professional's Guide, How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace. The book's two years old. Mm -hmm. Is it time to rewrite, or is everything in it uh, pretty much... uh, 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 an example that will stand the test of time, a classic, as it were. It is a classic. It is until we can er- eradicate the ideal of these um, biases and these preconceived notions is 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 going to age very well. Um, a few of my readers, my test readers, beta readers, I posted about it at home working on book two and the comments were, it's still relevant. Every mm. single chapter, it's 11 chapters, and it's still relevant. So I think it will age well. As long, the book is relevant, you said, as long as relationships have trouble. Yes. And it, it's the interpersonal relationships because I, I feel like what, what kind of precludes, uh, not precludes, but prohibits people from becoming familiar with the, each other's distance and opportunity and experience. Like, well, I live in a very multicultural neighborhood. I went to multicultural spaces. I've always been in predominantly white spaces. So people have had access to me. But for those who live in the suburbs and with the suppression of black images and media and how you don't see these loving families or you see one of, because you do have your, um, what was it, um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You had the Cosby Show. Um, you had um, 
Nichelle with Officer Winslow, but you didn't see that. It it was it wasn't yeah. common. Yeah. And I know black families who had mother and father who were lawyers or had a dad who was a doctor. But if you don't see that constantly, how do you have access to us to know that we're everyday ordinary people? Frame of reference becomes everything. Mm-hmm. How do you teach the person from uh, Darianne Arcade about the life that you lead? You can't teach them. You have to expose them to it. You have to show them. Like, this is normal. This is commonplace. Now, we have a lot of a lot of TV shows that are out there now because there's this whole idea of inclusivity, which some people will call wokeism, which I don't understand, but inclusivity. So you have a reboot of The Wonder Years, and it's with a black family, mm. a black family in the 60s. It's an amazing show. And I'm saying to myself, oh, my gosh, that's that's what happened. My grandmother did this. If people could see more images like that, yeah. it would be a better place. It really would be. Because you, you do have your, your Winslows, you have your Philip Banks, but then you just have your regular, ordinary family, middle class, just trying to make it. So, Jillian Hainsworth, the poet laureate, is a, a sometimes guest on this program. And last time she was on, she said, Dave, just go to lunch on the east side. That, that integration is an active thing just by exposing mm-hmm. yourself. Absolutely. Because let me tell you, I don't live on the east side. I grew up on the east side, but I don't live on the east side. But I absolutely love the history, the people. I, as a matter of fact, I'm filming my own little um, access talk show, um, Coffee and Conversations with Cookie at the Apollo. And whenever I'm down there, I just take in that whole area. It's right across the street from where the tragedy happened. I take in that whole area and I live it and I breathe it and I inhale it. And it is now becoming more and more integrated. It's not uncommon to see white people or um, people who I'm assuming to be Latino or um, Asian in those areas. And there's no animosity. There's no hostility. People have this ideal that if you come on the east side, this is going to happen to Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) Nothing would absolutely happen to anyone. They would be more so inclined to come after me because they know I'm a black female intersectionality. They're not going to investigate a crime against me as hard as they would a white person or an Asian person. So if you come over to the east side, there's a wonderful cigar bar there. There's the, you know, the revamping of the tops there. There's the Apollo Media, and it's public. So you can come in there. You can talk to the director. You can get some things done. You can shoot a podcast. You just have to expose yourself, and it's the integration part that people are so fearful of. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo. I grew up... um Primarily um, French Street area, and then we moved to um, Reed Street. We lived there for quite some time, and while I lived on Reed Street, that's where I attended City Honors from, and most of my friends from Reed Street were still friends. We call ourselves Reed Street (laughs) All-Stars. So, I mean, I'm I'm an East Side girl, and, and, and I love it. I just love the area. And therefore, I've got to assume... The, the 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 shooting devastated you. No, you know. First of all, I know there's a resilience thing thing there. It's, well, it's not even about the re- because I don't want people to to lead with that trope either. That because we're such a resilient people that it doesn't affect us. My best friend. That's a trope. You. It's say. a trope. Okay. My right. best friend is the bookkeeper there, and I knew she was working that day, 
And when I got the phone call from one of the Reed Street All-Stars, because like I said, we all grew You're up on Reed Street. We're a group. We talked to each other. Did you hear about the shooting? What shooting? Tops. I was actually out in Hamburg with my mother at the casino. What shooting at Tops? Which Tops? Jefferson. My heart dropped. So I'm calling my girlfriend. I'm calling her. And her sister is calling me. She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. It was so unbelievable, so devastating. But what was even more so devastating is to have to go to, you know, go to work and not have not one of your coworkers ask you, are you okay? How did this affect you? It wasn't even acknowledged. It wasn't even, uh, I'm so sorry for your community. It was nothing. Do you think it was a matter of them staying away from it because it was a racial issue? I think that had some... Uh, if, I, if I'm going to ask you about it, I'm going to assume that it represents something different to you because you're a person of color. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that's a a more difficult conversation to have. Anytime you're talking about race... It, it, it's very it, uncomfortable. It, it's very uncomfortable to to sit here and be a person of color. But these are the tough conversations that we have to have in order to reach a common ground and a common understanding. So one way to do it is to acknowledge that this awful thing happened in a community that represents you, even if I don't live there. I still have family there. I still have roots there. So even if I don't live there, I represent that community. I'm a person of color. I, I love that tops because I love my friends that work there. So I might have at any given point in time have been sitting on the bench with my best friend, having a conversation with her on her on her break. Mm. You know, I, I would just sometimes just say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm about to go on cigarette break. OK, I'm going to come sit on the bench with you. So this that's home. That's family. So how do you acknowledge that these people had this tragic thing happen to them based solely on their color. And why did this person have so much access? That's the other part. The food deserts, the the the, the lack of resources is why they had to reopen that tops because there is no no community market. There right. is no co-op. So that whole it's a bigger picture, but just acknowledge the incident first and then we could talk about the problems and how to solve them. So And is it proper for someone to just assume that it's okay to have these conversations? Um, when when is it useful and good? When am I being offensive? How do we draw that line? You know what? I don't. It it takes a lot to offend me because I don't feel any question is a dumb question. We learned that in school. The only dumb question is the one unasked. But what I don't like is the the well. I mean, I know that happened to you, but it is. <laughs> and so how do you say it's just all about race? Because this happened, that centering, okay. it, it drives me insane. And then when they deliberately want to miss the point, when they don't want to deliberately, deliberately yeah. miss the point. And you can tell when someone is being deliberate in their tone and their conversation, the condescending, the patronizing. Those are the things you can't document when you're trying to document racism. Going back to it, right, right. Right. But you can feel them. So I don't I don't feel like it's offensive, but to ask the question. But I feel like if I tell you that you're being offensive, that's not your time to get resentful and then try to tone check me and then try to downplay how I'm feeling about your question. If if you say the question is valid, then I must be ready to 
assume that your answer is valid. Right. You can't you can't disqualify or invalidate my response. And I I mean, I have some coworkers who I feel are not as um, liberal as I am. And some of them, I don't talk about my book at work. I don't feel like I have to. And I know I had a book released the earlier part of this year, and I invited certain people. And the grumblings from those people were, oh, why, she didn't invite me because I'm white? Well, no, there were white people there. What are you saying? <laughs> I have white friends. I have, I mean, I hate when people do that, but it's I do. Allowed, yeah. I do have white, I have white family members. What are you saying? So, no, I didn't invite you because I, I know where you're coming from and your exposure to me is going to be limited because I can't have you invade my personal space and my workspace. It's bad enough I have to deal with you at work. So I have to walk a fine line between protecting my inner peace and my comfort, and everything can't be about race. Broadly speaking, and maybe this isn't a question about race, but it probably is. Uh, broadly speaking, what does Buffalo need? Buffalo needs more resources for the youth. They need to see some hope. The inner city youth need to see hope. They need to see that the light at the end of the tunnel is not the train, it's not TikTok, it's not Instagram, it's actually a path. And if you stay the course, there is or can be beautiful outcomes. So we need more youth resources. And they have you have to start young. You have to start early. Are you talking more mentorship programs? Yes. Okay. Of which I'm trying to start. I, I actually have a, a grant writer who is doing some research for me now because I am partnering with a friend of mine in order to provide those um, mentoring programs and those type of um, boots to the ground activities so that they can see that, you know, it's hard work. Everybody's not going to be going viral and get famous off of TikTok because they tried this lipstick. There's actually work to be done. All right. And and you mentioned that you're working on a second book. And I er am. Earlier or in the program, you spoke of poetry. <laughs> So I've, I've got to ask you, what are you writing now? Well, I'm working on two books. One of them is a little urban fiction, and I'm not going to say the title of that because it's a little spicy, and I don't think I All can right. say it on air. And the other one is the Black Professionals Guys Sisters Play Nice in the Sandbox, and it's about the relationships between women in the workplace and how we kind of do each other in, tragically. I, I, so that's interesting to me. Your premise is that sisters... Don't treat each other the way they should. And and this is not sisters as in women of color. I'm talking about sisters, women. Okay. Yeah, we don't treat each other fair. All right, what about the poetry? Oh, I love poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I write a lot of poetry. I write I write something every day. And it's, it's kind of like my heartbeat. And I used to be a slam poet, and um, I... I Something might hit me, and I'll just, like, I wrote about cutting my hair off. So I, I did this poem, um, my short natural hair, colored blonde, yet I have no blue eyes or even green, but I work this look better than any Caucasian queen. And that's no shade, but buzz cuts or fades like me is well-maintained. Yeah, I said it short and cute with intelligence to boot, but when I cut off my dark brown tresses, people began to wonder, girl, is it basketball shorts or dresses? Save your questions or comments unless it's to compliment. This is my signature look created more than 20 years ago, long before the beautiful Amber Rose. I decided not to let my hair grow. And that was just one of the points. And that's <laughs> off the top of your head. That's tremendous. Uh, still doing slams? No. Okay. 
<laughs> I will. I, I, that's part of the mentoring, getting people right. to express themselves through poetry, through writing, and to see that there, there's, there's something to be said about what's inside of you and how you translate it to paper to pen. Nurse practitioner Chandra Brown, the author of the Black Professionals Guide: How to Navigate White Privilege in the Workplace, and the one you're working on is what? The Black Professionals Guide: Sisters Play Nice in the Sandbox. Thanks so much for being here. This was fun. Thank you. And another one. We got to have you back. I'll be happy to come back. All right. Very good. (laughs) We'll continue the discussion, not necessarily with her, but with someone tomorrow here on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR stations. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.